What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest, I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Smart People Podcast. I'm Chris Stemp. And I'm John Rojas. Thanks for joining us today. Really interesting show. I got to admit, this was one of those ones that I, and I, I don't make any bones about it during the interview. I didn't want to like it, uh, but man... He was a good speaker, and I think I'm going to have to dive in more. I really like some of the things he had to say. There was a reason why one of my philosophy classes that I stayed in Maymester... One that you didn't cheat in? Yeah, of course. <laughs> I didn't know that that was there. Of course, mom and dad. <laughs> no, but uh, the one that I stayed for in May, it was my favorite class. The guy, I mean, obviously being the philosophy teacher, he was also like a championship kickboxer oh, yeah. and all this. I mean, he was just a crazy, well-rounded dude. Here's the thing. Everybody wants to be a philosopher. Of course. I, it's the coolest thing ever. But it usually, I don't know the connotation that it has. Well, you heard what, what Stefan said, too. He said... You just gave his name away. No, uh, That's true. We, we can, were going to hold we that. We can now, believe that. But uh, you heard what he said after he graduated. He was like, oh, that was really cool, but now I've now got what? to do something that actually pays money. Yeah. And, you know, I think I was trying to think, why was I so skeptical? I think one of the reasons was when you type his name into Google, like the third thing that pops up is cult. Well, his name <laughs> doesn't come without criticism. Right. And, you know, anybody that has any type of following, I mean, I'm sure there's a few people out there with I that mean, hate us. Yeah, no, it's true. So anyways, this week we speak with Stefan Molyneux, and he is a blogger, podcaster, essayist, author, host of Free Domain Radio, which is a series of podcasts. You can check him out on freedomainradio.com. He's got quite the following. He's got a lot of people who tune in and listen to what he has to say. And he's written a, a number of books, 
And as you'll hear, he's he's a smart dude. I mean, he's well spoken. He's funny. He had us chuckling, which oh, he's is definitely funny for a philosopher. Isn't high up on the charts, but we touch all types of things. I mean, he talks about free will, property rights, his theory on if you should or should not spank your child, and even everything to why men might not want to get married these days. So. Great episode. You might not agree with everything. And if you don't, I would like you to email us. Uh, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or you can just uh, go to our website and do the contact us. Also, if you want to get on our mailing list, we're getting ever closer to sending out our best of and some interesting things. Go ahead and do that. Check us out at smartpeoplepodcast.com or on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you download us on iTunes, please, please, please comment, rate, and leave a review there. Definitely helps us out. We haven't seen any reviews in about over a month. And last time we got a bunch of reviews in, we actually spiked up the chart a little bit and saw an increase in downloads. So if you want to do your part and help us out, just leave a nice little one-sentence review over there. We greatly appreciate it. All right. So without further ado, we will turn it over to Stefan Molyneux. We really just wanted to start off and talk a little bit about the brand that you have built, the Empire of Stefan. And, uh, you know, I guess wanted to, to get a little background on how you got into basically podcasting and YouTubing and writing books. Seemed like a little bit of a departure from what you were doing beforehand, which I believe was uh, in the IT field. Yeah, I was... Um I mean, I, I've taken a bit of a circuitous route. Uh, I started, um, I did half an English literature degree. Then I went to the National Theatre School, studied acting and playwriting and did that for a little while. And then I finished an undergraduate in history at McGill. And then I did a master's in history, really focusing on the history of philosophy at the University of Toronto. And then, like most people who leap out of the amniotic sack of academia into the cold, harsh world, I went... What was I thinking? <laughs> that was a lot of fun, but what am I going to do with this? So I, um, I mean, I've been fascinated by computers and programming. I sort of bought, I got a job and got my first computer when I was like 11 or 12. And I'm of that age where <laughs> it came with 2K of memory. I was very excited. <laughs> and, uh, and so I ended up back in the IT field. I was programming the whole time and I, I co-founded a company. We grew it. We sold it. I hung around there for a while, worked at a couple of other, a couple of other different companies uh, at an executive level. Lots of sales, lots of travel, lots of uh, R&D, lots of good meaty uh, stuff in the IT field. But I had a kind of a long commute, frankly, and I was tired <laughs> of listening to audiobooks. And um, so I thought, you know, I've been thinking and studying philosophy off and on for the past sad number of decades. So, so why don't I share some of the few things that I've gleaned? So I started to write and record shows actually while I was, uh, while I was driving. Uh, and, um, so I did that. Uh, I started publishing them. They got some interest and then people said, Hey, you know, they, we could donate to you. And I thought, well, okay, that might be a little bit of gas money. And it turned out that the donations were more than I expected. So after, I don't know, a year or two of doing that, I thought, ah, you know, I've been an entrepreneur, let's just take another swing at it. And so I left my career and decided to go full-time into the podcasting world and then, you know, just videos and that. And I ended up being not too bad at public speaking. So I've done a lot of speaking engagements throughout North and South America and um, just trying to spread the the good old 
polysyllabic back rubber philosophy to as many people as I can get to lie down on a soggy mat. Probably that <laughs> metaphor got away from me. Um, sometimes, sometimes you know, the metaphor, right, you write it and sometimes it just throws you. That would be an example of the second kind. Ah, no, it worked, worked for us. And of course, the podcast and YouTube, all that you talk about is free domain radio. And I was wondering, what is the philosophical basis for what you kind of decided you were going to talk about? I mean, you have some very staunch beliefs. I, I don't know the best way to put it, but obviously <laughs> things that will garner attention, criticism, and obviously a lot of people enjoy it. So I was kind of wondering if you could explain to our listeners who aren't familiar the, the background for it and the basis. Yeah, I mean, technically the Latin for them is deranged certainties. So I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll defer to the... Uh, uh, the big Latin on that. Well, the basic idea is that there is objective truth. It can be discovered by reason, uh, reason in conjunction with evidence, the old scientific methods, reason in conjunction with evidence is the royal road to uh, a truth that you can really take to the bank. Oh, that's not a good metaphor these days anymore, <laughs> is it? That you can be certain of, that you can set your feet in concrete and throw yourself to the bottom of the ocean of truth and certainty. There we go again. Anyway, so the idea is that you know, Socratic reasoning, uh, as Nietzsche phrased the Socratic approach, reason equals virtue equals happiness, right? So you have to be rational in order to be virtuous. You can't be virtuous just by obeying something, by obeying a law, by obeying someone, by obeying a group, by obeying a country, by obeying a dictator or a teacher. You have to be rational in order to be virtuous. Now, if you're virtuous, which can only be achieved through rationality, then the, the idea is, the, 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 the dice that you roll is... If I am rational, I can be virtuous. If I'm virtuous, that gives me my greatest chance for happiness. And uh, so that's really what I'm trying to, uh, to work into people's brains. Uh, so much of our ethical life is either command-based, in other words, do it because someone on authority tells you that it's right or wrong, you know, which is where you end up with these horrible experiments that were done in the 60s where 60 or 70% of people would actually push a button and kill someone in America if someone in a lab coat, in a simulated experiment, if someone in a lab coat told them to do so because we're raised to just say, well, that's what the teacher says. That's what the law says. That's what the government says. That's what my father or mother says. That's what culture says. That's what everybody says. That's not a good road to virtue. I mean, following the herd just usually leads you off a cliff. On the other hand, there's a kind of supernaturalism uh, which comes from the religious side of ethics, and religion and philosophy are not uh, close. I would say kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And so on the religious side, it's like, well, it's good because there's a commandment written down, but this this time not from a person but from a supernatural being. And that's not a good guide. Even if you accept that there's a supernatural being who can give you commandments, unfortunately the way they're received is through people, uh, priests, or through texts which have so many contradictions, have been reinterpreted and mistranslated so many times, you can't get to the original uh, meaning anymore, even if we accepted there was one. So if you can't get them from gods and you can't get your, your virtues from governments or following commandments, where do you get them from? Well, the idea is that you follow the path of reason and evidence. And there's good rational arguments for virtue I think we can see throughout history that virtue produces good empirical results, like when you respect property rights, you get a good flourishing free market and you get the growth of wealth and the elimination of poverty as much as possible. And then when you have, you know, coercion and violence and totalitarian dictatorships, you end up with, you know, heaps of bodies all over the place, which is all pretty, pretty rotten. So that's the basic idea. Um, I 
accept free will. I got lots of arguments for that. So we are responsible for what we do. I accept property rights, lots of arguments for that. I accept uh, the non-aggression principle is really the keystone, I think, of any good uh, ethical system. Thou shalt not uh, initiate the use of force against other people. You can use violence in an extremity of self-defense, you know, if Leatherface is parachuting down your chimney uh, currently on fire with a machete in one hand and a chainsaw on the other. Yes, you guess you can shoot him in the knee to prevent him from doing whatever he's going to do. But generally, uh, you can't use force except in an extremity of self-defense. Respect for property rights, the non-aggression principle, all that kind of good stuff is the foundation of what I talk about, and everything kind of flows from there. Okay, so there's so much to cover already, and it's funny because I, I got to admit, I don't like people that feel like they have to stand on a soapbox sometimes, so I wanted to dislike what you had to say, but I can't. I mean, without diving into a oh, lot of... Oh, come on, try a little more. Well, without diving into <laughs> a lot of the details... Should I do it in details? an outrageously offensive accent that it's going to annoy most of your listeners? <laughs> Shall I just start the whole thing again in some really insulting pseudo-South accent or something like that? <laughs> no. Well, you see, y'all... Gotta... Sorry. No, no, now I do. Now I, I, do. Now I do dislike you. No. Um, but I mean... <laughs> Yahoo! How do, how do people dispute? I would like to know things such as free will and having property rights and non-aggression. I mean, to me, translated, it's take responsibility for your actions. You own what you own and don't punch your neighbor in the face. Those all seem like things that I could get behind. So where do you meet so much opposition? It's not the ideals in the abstract, but the ideals in the practice that people and philosophy generally part ways. So, for instance, spanking, not the fun adult with jelly kind, <laughs> but the not so fun punishing over the knee child kind, is spanking a violation of the non-aggression principle. Ah. Well, yes, of course it is, right? So you're not acting in self-defense. Uh, it, it is the initiation of force against against the child. And uh, so 80 to 90 percent of parents are still spanking their children. So is that an immoral action? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it's not in a weird way. It's not immoral until they find out. Hmm. Right. Until you've like it, ethics is a kind of technology. You can't blame people for not having an iPad in the 14th century. Right. And and if people have never heard the arguments, if all they've ever heard is spare the rod, spoil the child or, you know, children will run wild if you don't hit them or whatever, then in a sense, they kind of exist in a state of nature. It's neither moral nor immoral. But once you make a good case and I've had experts on the show and I've put forth pretty rigorous philosophical arguments about spanking as a violation of the non-aggression principle. Well, people get a little testy about that because not many of us are out there strangling hobos on a nightly basis. And <laughs> so we think that the non-initiation of force doesn't really apply to us. But given that 80 to 90 percent of parents are spanking their children, well, there's an example. Another example, of course, is uh, taxation. Taxation is the initiation of force against citizens for the forcible removal of their property. And so uh, the, the problem with the non-aggression principle, the, I guess the opportunity and the problem, if you apply it consistently – well, by golly, you end up with a, a society where you can't justify or defend the existence of a state, of a sort of centralized political oligarchy. Uh, and that makes people a little tense as well. So it's really not the abstract so much. It's really the everyday stuff that where it really 
bothers people, right? I mean, how many of us shoplift? It's not a big problem when we say property rights, but when we start to talk about centralized control of currency as a form of counterfeiting that is immoral because it's illegal for a private citizen to do, but it's considered good or moral for a government to do, uh, uh, taxation, which is the forcible removal of property, um, which is, again, illegal for a private citizen to do, but considered virtuous for a public citizen to do, uh, selling off the unborn, kind of illegal mm -hmm. in the private sector, but just called a national debt in the public sector. So once you start to get this stuff together, then that's not good. And the last thing, of course, is, is religion, right? I mean, if you found a philosophy on reason and evidence, well, then you really have to reject the 10,000 odd uh, supernatural beings that people claim uh, exist and rule mankind. So uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot in there for people to, I mean, I'm not getting handed a cup of hemlock anymore because <laughs> we've made that much progress as a species, but uh, it, there definitely is enough in philosophy to, to make people testy. But I, mean, I kind of go with Churchill on this. You know, Churchill said to a young cabinet minister, a minister once, uh, I said, ah, I heard you have enemies. Good. That means you have stood up for something sometime, somewhere. And I, I think there's a natural uh, uh, result of that. No, I, I actually agree with you on that one. And clearly the religious argument, that one, no matter what your stance is, somebody's going to hate you and wish you dead. So I kind of throw that one out. But the other one still, I, I have no qualms yet. So I, uh, I'm going to move on. What, John, yeah, you have some? I actually thought it was interesting because I think you you almost said it as a throwaway comment when Leatherhead was coming into your house and you mentioned shoot him in the knee to stop him from doing whatever you would do to him. There's probably people that you pissed off with that statement because I know a lot of people that are really pro-guns and it's, hey, if you break into my house, I'm blowing you away. I'm not preventing you from doing it. So even in that small piece that you look at it where it's, I'm going to stop this person from doing something as opposed to, I guess, taking their life for them trespassing on your property. And I, I, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think the moral argument would be, just, I mean, it's a tough call to make in the middle of the night when someone's coming through your window. But I think ideally we'd want there to be, if force was necessary to prevent injury, and, and it is, you know, I think it's two and a half million times every single year in the United States, a, a crime is prevented through somebody being armed. So, I mean, obviously gun control is is uh, valid and, and moral, but we would like it to, to be a minimum of force sure. that is necessary. Uh, I mean, you, you don't call in an airstrike because somebody put their toe on your property. That's sort of, you know, <laughs> what we're, I guess, unless you're an Iraqi. But uh, the idea, of course, is that um, you really want to use a minimum amount of force. That's the only reason why I said shoot the knee. I mean, if some guy's just jumping at you, you do whatever you can. But, uh, but again, I mean, this is not particularly... Uh, common stuff relative to the other kinds of injustices that are going on every day. Well, let's talk about evil government. I feel like there's got to be somewhere in there that you piss a lot of people off. I tend to be under the belief that democracy is the best bad government that has ever existed. <laughs> How do you feel about that? Yes. Well, the way that I look at states is it's sort of like a buffet of tumors and <laughs> you sort of drank there by the doctor and and it's like, ah, oh, you see, we have rancid bone marrow carcinoma. I'm just making, I'm not a doctor, what do I know? <laughs> we have brain jumping zombie head uh, carcinomas. Uh, we have relatively minor, you know, stuff which will only kind of make your leg fall off or whatever. Which one do you want? Mm -hmm. And I think the philosophical approach is I'm really looking for an option called none of the above. You know, mm -hmm. how about a no cancer buffet? That would be super for me. As, I mean, you know the quote from Churchill. He says, uh, democracy is the, the worst conceivable system of government except for all the others that have been tried from time to time. Right. I kind of agree with that. It's just that democracies um, 
they implode, and we can see this happening all around us right now, they implode with depressing heartbeat-style regularity throughout history uh, because the moment that people can figure out that they can vote away other people's money, including the unborn, I mean, it's just a shock attack fest on the next generation. So I, I think that we need, need to at least look at the possibility of societies without a state. And it's, it's weird for people to think about, of course, but, you know, weird is good when it comes to philosophy because it means it's something new. We had societies that had slavery. Uh, all human societies had slavery up until sort of the middle, late parts of last millennia. And so you say, ah, oh, you show me a society without slavery. Slavery is a natural human condition. All societies have slaves. And who's going to pick the cotton if we don't have slaves? Well, all these questions get answered when you extend uh, human rights to slaves uh, and turn them into free people. And when you extend the laws of ethics to the state, then you can't have a state because they are the people who have the legal monopoly on the initiation of the use of force in a, ge in a given geographical area. But how does putting a costume on living in a big boob-shaped building, <laughs> how does that give you separate moral qualities? It doesn't. So do you think that, say, we, ha we didn't have this, this state, this centralized government that could impose its will on you, do you think people would be able to get along based on their own moral compass? Because I mean, I, well, just, I, I, I feel like it could get be along. It's anarchy. Board, you know, is everyone going to be involved in some multiplanetary tongue kiss? I'm not saying that would necessarily <laughs> be the case, but certain human beings, in the absence of coercion, tend to work together pretty well. I mean, we are talking through a whole bunch of internet service providers who isn't they're not ordered a gunpoint to exchange data packets, but they do. You can use a cell phone uh, in in. Brazil, uh, if you don't mind handing over your kidney to someone, you can uh, use a cell phone because they all exchange data based on they want to. If you look at something like um, uh, eBay, uh, one of the world's largest employers, I think over 300,000 people get their income through eBay and eBay resolves its disputes without courts, without police, without anything like that. I was talking, to, I was giving a speech last uh, summer in Las Vegas at Freedom Fest. I'm actually going to be back there again. Uh, this year, and I heard a talk from a guy who's he was a lawyer, and he said, You know, I was in South America, I can't remember where. He said, I, I got a meal, and they double charged me for something. And, uh, you know, w w w what would I have done? Gone to the cops there, or the cops when I got home, nothing would have happened. But I just called up Visa, and Visa resolved the dispute for me, gave me my money back. So there's tons, you know, the vast majority of what occurs in the world is private arbitration, is non governmental. Uh, forms of resolving justice. And anyone who believes that the government dispenses justice, you automatically know is somebody who's never, ever tried to use the government to dispense justice because it's a multi-year, hundreds of thousands of dollars proposition to try and get justice through the court system. So uh, given that nobody can use it anyway, given that it's incredibly corrupt and unjust and takes forever and can be appealed to, to, to the end of time, uh, and there's so many examples of great ways that people can resolve disputes without using the force of the government, let's just sweep away stuff that people can't use that's ridiculously expensive and time-consuming and just make way for the stuff which has been proven uh, very effective and cheap and, and give the poor finally access to the justice that is currently denied them. It was verbose and it sounded good. So I literally don't know how to come back at that. You know what I mean? It sounds good. So the, the one thing is sometimes I wonder without, and you've put more thought into this than I clearly. So that's why I'm picking your brain. But sometimes I wonder without this government that maybe helped create these economic models or the ability to maybe have safety or what have you, these companies wouldn't exist in the first place. Is that what, where do, what do you think about that? Sorry, but you said these companies wouldn't exist in the first place. What do you mean? Well, I guess I mean if, say, we weren't to have, and, and again, I, I can speak really only in the U.S., so I guess if you were in Afghanistan and you didn't have these freedoms, you might not be able to do it. But without the safety that I believe we're given through government, 
it might be more difficult to operate a company or have, you know, the structure to do that. Right. Okay. Well, I mean, of course, if you get rid of governments, you get rid of corporations because corporations are special favorite children of the government, right? right. I mean, corporations um, are, are basically legal immunity for the consequences of economic and, and um, legal actions given to generally the rich who are in control of corporations. And in return for this privilege, they pay corporate taxes, which is just another way of saying they basically pay reduce their employees' salaries in order to pay corporate taxes. But corporations have nothing to do with the free market. Corporations are these legal privilege given to the rich by the state, uh, wherein if your corporation makes money, you can take out all the money. You go buy your house, you can go uh, you know, get yourself a second gold-plated sex cyborg if you want. I know I have. <laughs> and so if you, if you take the money out of the corporation, that's fine. If your corporation loses money, do you ever have to give it back? No. It's a one-way money conveyor belt out of the corporation to private citizens. Never has to be returned. Uh, if your corporation makes a lot of money, you get it out. If your corporation, say, spills a whole bunch of oil in the Gulf, you don't have to give any of that money back. So it's a very corrupt and corrupting uh, mechanism. I would very much like to see the idea of corporate personhood out uh, of the window, limited liability out of the window. It's the best way to make sure that banks aren't going to blow up the economic system if they're the first ones to lose their houses, as opposed to now when you have about 3,000 people arrested for Occupy Wall Street activities and zero bankers I know. even prosecuted. So, uh, And Aaron Schwartz, for copying some uh, data, is harassed and harangued with 30-year sentences to the point where the poor young man kills himself and the bankers just go and trade barbs with the congressman and walk home. Why? Because they just bribe the congressman and that's why the congressman don't want to uh, uh, you know, attack them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, in terms of health and safety, environmental regulation, I, you know, I won't bore you all with the free market or, or voluntary solutions to these kinds of things. They've been studied in, in great detail and, and people can just do a search on them for, you know, a voluntarist or voluntarist or anarchist or anarcho-capitalist. And there's tons of resources out there. But the basic idea is that um, if you run a factory and you as a factory owner are personally liable for the damages that you may cause your employees, well, you know, gosh and golly, I bet you're going to be pretty careful about the machinery that they use. Uh, whereas if you have this legal immunity, your sense of responsibility towards your fellow man is tragically going to decline somewhat. And uh, the legal immunity is the problem in the form of the corporation, not uh, the, the market-based activity. In a free market, I mean, what is the alternative to corporations? And then how does, I mean, how does a business get to that point? Like if if somebody had the idea of an, an iPad without the backing of a corporation and all that money to go into research and development, it's kind of hard to make the iPad. So how, how do businesses or how do person-to-person -person transactions develop into how successful corporations have become? Yeah, I mean, this is the, if I'm not Genghis Khan, how could I possibly have children argument, right? Okay, he had sure, a lot of children, yeah. but it wasn't particularly voluntary. People are still going to get together. They're going to get together and, and create entities or groups or organizations. I hesitate to call them corporations because that's a specific legal fiction created and maintained by the state. But yeah, of course, they're going to get together. They're going to get investment. They're going to have contracts between each other and so on. And, and they're going to present the contracts uh, to the shareholders. And the person who has the best contract is going to win. And that kind of contract is going to become a template and the contract is going to balance shareholder rights with employee rights with uh, uh, manager rights and so on and, and, and customer rights as well. So, I, I mean, I have no idea. I mean, you can't invent the future. That's why we need freedom, right? I mean, right. You, you can't know what's going to take the place of slaves picking cotton. You wouldn't imagine that it's giant robots running on crushed dinosaur tree juice sweeping back and forth across the plains. I mean, nobody would guess that. But what you do know is that people will still get together and cooperate to produce things. There will be aggregations of uh, entities. They'll be called, I don't know, uh, 
iPad Borg machines. <laughs> I don't know what they'll be called, but they'll still be aggregations. It's just that there won't be this specific legal immunity from the mm. consequences of your actions, uh, which is, uh, you know, which has done, done a huge amount to discredit business. Business, of course, is completely messed up by the state in, in so many different ways. I mean, the stock market is completely messed up by the state with, you know, crazy regulations, the government controlling the money supply, government controlling interest rates, which is the incredibly sensitive signal that businesses need to know the price of money and the value of investment. Uh, the fact that there's this pseudo-regulation uh, lowers people's defenses because they say, oh, the government's regulating things, so it's okay. Nothing could be further. nothing more dangerous when the government is pretending to regulate something because it's like having some illness, but it has no symptoms. It's like, oh, no, I want symptoms. I want there to be pain if I'm, if I'm not well. And, of course, the government forces huge amounts of money into the stock market that just plain doesn't want to be there, right? Because, you know, if you've got retirement savings or other kinds of investments, you have to put it in the stock market or the government's going to take it from you in the form of higher taxes. So... <laughs> I mean, the biz, what we see now is like a completely mutant zombie portrait of the original uh, that doesn't have anything to do with what a genuinely free market would look like. And I think it's just, I don't hate to point that out too in too long a segment. I really want to point out that we have to make, I think, the decisions on what's right or wrong according to principles, not according to what might happen or what might not happen. Uh, the initiation of force is wrong, and if we accept that, we can't create a special exclusion for government. It's incredibly dangerous. It's like gun control. I mean, nobody wants gun control. You either want guns to be available to human beings in general, or you want guns to be only available to the government and not to the citizens. And boy, has that ever caused problems in history? Yes, I think it has. So, uh, so it's just around having a common moral standard. And if you have that, a lot of our existing institutions are revealed as not so much on the sunny side of the street when it comes to ethics. So from a philosophical level, what needs to change for our thinking? Because, I mean, when you look back in history, a lot of stuff has been dictated by religion, governments, and that kind of stuff. And we're kind of, I mean, it's kind of in our code now to always look to something to lead us. Now, when mm. when you talk about this, like how... How do I go about thinking? I'm just thinking out loud here, so I apologize for trying to phrase it. Yeah, but we're going to have to edit that question. Yeah, that's, that's okay, though. <laughs> How do you go about imagining that society? I mean, what is the first step? Well, the first step is to recognize that in any evolution in human ethics, it's always earlier than you think. You know, because I mean, I've been working with this stuff for 30, 40, uh, 30 years, I guess, about since I was about 16 or 17. I've been working uh, studying philosophy. So for me, it's like, okay, I get it. I understand it. And it's, I've accepted, worked through it. For the majority of people, I mean, you're sort of saying, hey, see that fiery gorge? Let's all jump into it. Don't worry. <laughs> the winged god Poseidon <laughs> will, you know, take us away to some magical, wonderful utopia. And, you know, where Lady Gaga never got a hip injury and we can dance with her all night long. So, but, but, so the way it looks from the outside is very different from the way it looks from the inside. If you look at revolutions or evolutions in history, uh, anti-slavery, yeah, it took about 100, 150 years uh, from Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft's uh, publication of uh, Vindication of the Rights of Women in the early 18th century, early 19th century, took about 150 years for the equal rights for women to, to come across. So even with the, you know, accelerating mad joy juice of the internet, uh, instant share and all that kind of stuff, the giant copy machine, as Aaron Schwartz co uh, called it, uh, we can accelerate that a little bit, but it's still generations away. And the way that we do it uh, is is we don't worry about the existing institutions. I mean, the, the existing institutions only exist because of people's belief in them. It's, it's sure. a weird kind of thing, right? I mean, a church is a building without faith. And a government is a museum without patriotism. So people's belief in these institutions is what gives them their power. 
And that's different from everything else. It's not my belief that the sun is hot that makes the sun hot, right? It's not my belief that gases expand when heated that makes them exist. That's just a fact. That's a reality. But almost everything that's cultural or social exists because we believe that it exists. And so you can't fight the institution because that's the mere shadow of a belief, right? Like if you want to change where the shadow of a statue is, you don't push the shadow. I mean, that's just an effect. So you have to change the cause of these beliefs. And you can do some of that through, you know, rational enlightenment, through Socratic questioning, through all that kind of good stuff. But the vast majority of it is going to have to be done intergenerationally through introducing philosophical concepts into parenting. I mean, if we raise our children without aggression, without dominance, without punishment, without hierarchy. And I'm stay-at-home dad, have been for uh, over four years now, so I am practicing what I preach, and I can tell you it works out incredibly, beautifully, wonderfully, magnificently, fantastically well. But if we raise our children without spanking, without hitting, without yelling, without intimidation, without punishment, then they won't grow up obeying out of fear. Now, if children don't grow up obeying out of fear or seeking gratification and reward through the arbitrary whims of those in authority, then our current existing structures, the, the mental structures which compose society, state, religion, fundamentally, countries, good Lord, a bunch of tax farms, but they will approach these institutions with the same baffled incomprehension as you and I would approach some Martian religion you know, where they worship some spiral seashell. And, and I mean, I don't know. They believe that the, the two moons were defecated by some orbiting god. Uh, we would just say, well, that's kind of weird. I, I mean, but have no emotional hold over us. Like, you know, you flip through a National Geographic uh, and you see these, um, you know, strange stone gods deep in the jungle of the Mayan peninsula or something. And if you're not raised in that religion, it's just, wow, that's some cultural artifacts. Uh, but they don't have any, you'd never think of like, worshipping them or obeying them. They're just cultural artifacts because you weren't raised that way. So if you raise children peacefully and in an egalitarian and respectful fashion, then they will look at the institutions which primarily have come out of bad childhoods, the bad childhoods throughout history, as a weird Martian anachronism, and they simply will not have within them the mental structures that mirror and anticipate the structures that people believe in in society, the hierarchies, the, the excuses for coercion we call the state, the excuses for aggressive superstition we call religion, they simply won't match those templates. It'll be a round peg into a square hole, and these things will simply fade away of their own accord. But it starts in how we raise our children. I'm actually glad you brought that up. I know in looking through your stuff, Free Domain Radio and some of your videos, you know, that seems to be a pervasive idea throughout is kind of the way you raise your children and I can imagine that's a subject that you meet a lot of criticism and just different ideas. Is the opposite approach just I need to rule with a strict hand? If I don't, my kids are going to run around and do crazy things because my girlfriend's a kindergarten teacher and the kids are mildly insane. And I don't know how <laughs> I would prevent myself from not screaming at them. So, you know, what's what's the rationale there? Yeah, I mean, I, I was a daycare teacher uh, for years when I was a teenager as well, so I know that. But, of course, <laughs> I would imagine kindergarten uh, is, what, four, four or five years old? Five, exactly, yep. Something like that, right? Okay, well, so who knows what kind of childhoods these kids have had prior to coming to the kindergarten. I mean, 80 to 90% of our personalities are formed within the first four or five years of our life. So 
you know, it's like saying, well, there's some weird shaped pottery coming down the pipe. It's like, well, yeah, but there's a potter at the other end, a whole bunch of them. So who knows? Maybe these kids have been put in daycare since they were three months old. Right. Uh, but that's pretty tragic. Uh, maybe they come from single parent households. I mean, statistically, that's pretty negative for for children. Uh, maybe they've been bullied. Maybe I mean, who? Maybe they. I mean, you know for a fact, uh, statistically, that eight or nine out of those ten have been spanked. In fact, in England, it's it's completely like half of of parents, half of moms, frankly, will spank their infants before they are one year old. One year, you get hit a child who's basically a baby, and then we sort of say, well, you see, kids need a, st- a strong hand because they just they don't listen and because they're aggressive and because they they resist authority. It's like no, no, no. These are the effects of aggression. These are not. This is not. This, you don't spank because your kids are like that. Your kids are like that because you spank. Hmm. And and that's not my opinion. That's very well established scientifically. Spanking reduces IQ points. It it uh, produces social difficulties. It increases the 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 uh, capacity and and uh, uh, statistical relevance of bullying. Uh, it it has terribly negative effects. Uh, oppositional defiant disorder. It pr- promotes criminality and if if it's extreme and and continues for a long time. So if you say, well, kids, you know, we they're so crazy, they're so unmanageable, they're so undisciplined, they don't listen, and therefore we need to hit them. Well, I mean, this is the cause and effect is is bad. I was going to say, I've always found it funny that, uh, I mean, not really funny, but <laughs> that parents choose to spank their children. And if I was ever in this room with Chris and he said something that I agreed with and I just, you know, open hand slapped him. Beat the shit out of yeah, you. Yeah. Like I, I just could never see doing that to somebody of my, you know, same size and stature. I, I just, I've never <laughs> understood why we choose to do that to these these humans that are, you know, a quarter or a third of our size. Well, and, and of course, the difference is that, I mean, if you, and, and I think you meant to say disagreed with, but if, if your podcasting partner, your pod partner, pardon you, anyway, <laughs> if, if, if you hit him, then he can just walk out and never come back, right? You hit a five-year-old, what the hell are they going to do? Mm, right. They can't leave. They have no legal or economic uh, independence from you. Uh, it is... Uh, it, it, of all the people in the world that we should be promoting the non-aggression principle with, it should be children first and foremost. They're last on the list. Uh, why do people do it? Well, because the kids can't leave, because the parents probably have a whole bunch of irrational beliefs that the kid is curious and reasoning about, and they know they either have to aggress against their kid or they have to question their irrational beliefs. And so they choose to aggress against their kid to protect their irrational beliefs. I mean, these are just theories. I don't know exactly why uh, anyone would do that, but uh, it is crazy. I mean, whatever people say, well, you you have to, you know, you have to hit your kids to keep them in line. It's like, well, do you say that about your wife? You know, people used to. People used to say that about wives. <laughs> I still years do, ago. to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have a very liberal wife. But, but, but the reality is that, that we used to say all of this stuff about women, and now it's unthinkable. And the same thing is going to happen as well. Of course, the transition is, is pretty unpleasant for a lot of people. I mean, the transition to equal women's rights caused the breakup of, you know, millions and millions and millions of families. With the result that women's suicidality went down, their depression went down because they weren't locked into these uh, abysmal marriages, the promotion of virtue in the raising of children, I don't know what the result of it's going to be, but uh, it is, uh, you know, that's why I'm always telling parents, you know, just stop doing it. Because if the ethics change halfway through your parenting, and, and it will happen at some point, I mean, the, the, the speed in which feminists began to criticize abusive marriages in the 60s and 70s produced a 300 to 400% rise in the prevalence of divorce. And uh, boy, you don't want to be in the middle of your parenting when the ethics change underneath you, and they will. 
because the science is so irrefutable at this point. I mean, the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out against spanking. Uh, uh, I think uh, most of the major psychological associations have come out against spanking. The laws, of course, throughout Europe is that spanking is illegal in most of Europe. It's going to change here, too. Don't be still using force when society wakes up and realize how wrong it is, because then it's going to be very difficult for you. And that's why I really counsel as many people as I can to stop, stop doing it now and look for alternatives. As our last topic, I want to briefly switch over from babies to how babies are made, and that is uh, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully through this marriage. This is the part where we start playing the bad '70s disco music, and I slowly <laughs> begin to rub baby oil on my vast and glistening forehead. That is it, and this is the part of the uh, <laughs> right. podcast where we go video. <laughs> no, um, I, you know, John told me, and I didn't come across this, but. You did, I don't know if it was an article or a video about why men don't want to get married. I would like to know your theory because as a man probably on the precipice of that, I'd like somebody on my side. I am happily married and have been for over 10 years. I'm joyfully married. So marriage is wonderful, but modern marriage is extremely dangerous for men. Extremely dangerous. So, of course, since the advent of, of no-fault divorce, uh, a woman can wake up one day and just say, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And she can just leave. And then you're on the hook if you know for alimony, palimony, child support, and so on uh, until the end of time. That's a huge problem. One of the things that has occurred, of course, in the modern world is there has been a general displacement of fatherhood by the state, by the state providing free health care, by the state providing um, uh, child support payments, by the state providing free though horrible daycare in the form of public schools. And so what's happened, I think, as you can see, is that we've gone from Ward Cleaver to Homer Simpson, right? We've gone from the idea that a man is a valuable, essential, integral part of the family unit to the idea that a man is a decent sperm donor. And if he's around, it doesn't cause too much trouble. I guess we'll put up with him. Mm -hmm. But he's kind of an itchy, scratchy, childish lout who I'm probably better off without. And so it's become pretty risky uh, and uh, pretty contentious for men to, to get married. I mean, I think 60 or, or more percent of divorces are initiated by women. And the major reason given is uh, dissatisfaction. And <laughs> I mean, unfortunately, the data is in about what happens to kids in particular when raised by single moms uh, or with, with divorces. I mean, it's catastrophic for children. I mean, men are absolutely essential to the family. But unfortunately, that's just not part of our culture as a whole. And I had uh, Dr. Warren Farrell on my show a couple of weeks ago. He's actually coming back to do a two-hour call on this this coming Sunday at 10 a.m. But uh, he's got a great argument, which he says also, generally in the past, uh, we've we've chosen people who can't love us. We've chosen people who can't love us. So women will choose guys who make a lot of money. And guys who make a lot of money tend to be kind of cold-hearted. Like, you know, if you're a lawyer, you don't exactly want to see the other person's point of view. You want to kind of be dominant and win-lose and all that. And so then they say, well, I married him. He has a lot of money. He's a doctor. He's a lawyer. But he's emotionally unavailable. It's like, but that's why he has all that money because <laughs> he's kind of a cold-hearted guy who dominates and gets money. And uh, men, on the other hand, will choose a woman who's physically attractive who tends to be, you know, shallower, self-involved, kind of narcissistic and uh, uh, therefore not uh, able to love him. So, I mean, you can bypass all of this stuff. You can surmount all of this stuff, but you got to have really, I think, basic questions about values. You know, how are we going to raise our kids? Are we going to use 
coercion? Are we going to use reasoning? Uh, are we going to raise them religious? So what do we do with in-laws? What, I mean, we have to have all these conversations. There is this, you know, romantic comedy thing, the idea that you, you know, you see, you connect and love uh, takes you all the way over the rainbow. And that's a very dangerous notion. I mean, the biochemistry of love is you've got about six months till the hormones wear off and you sort of stare at each other mm-hmm. in a world called reality. And if you have conversations about values and virtues and basically what I would say, philosophical matchup conversations, you have a great shot. And out of my show, a whole bunch of marriages have, uh, I just actually came from one recently, a whole bunch of marriages have come out that I think are very successful because there's a value combo. But um, in the absence of that, man, you're rolling some serious dice with your testes attached and that can be kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny too because as a 29-year-old male in the dating game, I don't think that I've ever been on a date or like to a point where I like sit down with a girl and say, hey, how are you planning on raising a child? Like it just that never crosses my mind. So I fall into that. I think I'm going to fall into this trap for a while where <laughs> where I'm just well, rolling Well, that's because dice. you're really desiring to fall into something else, which that conversation <laughs> might not facilitate. No, if I, I think you're right. Late, <laughs> it be something along those lines. So I think we can be frank with each other. Hey, we can be any soul singer you like. <laughs> well, I know we have kept John a little longer than we, we said we were, but it was actually a fantastic conversation. I really like a lot of things you have to say. And despite my best efforts, I, you know, I really enjoyed it. So if you, <laughs> if, you, if you could... Um, well, listen, just for my listeners as well, since I'll, I'll obviously put this out on my own channel as well, uh, I, if you guys can give your vital, uh, vital statistics, let's put it out to... Um, I got like, I don't know, 60,000 YouTube subscribers. Let's get it at least out to them if you want to give us uh, your uh, website. Mine, of course, is freedomainradio.com for your listeners, but what's yours for mine? We are smartpeoplepodcast.com, and uh, you can check us out there. Every Sunday we release a new episode, so I really appreciate that, you know, the little plug there. So, uh, sorry, are you saying that that even after this conversation, you're still going to call yourself smart people in this podcast, <laughs> not, you know, glib people with artificially intelligent accents who just make stuff sound good podcast? Oh, that would be kind of a tough URL to get a hold of. I'm sure that's already taken by some major conglomerate. But, I have uh, to admit, I'm glad to know that the name is going to stick. That's I, good. I have to admit, I am jealous of the accent. I've always wanted one. So maybe I'll have to move to Australia for 10 years or something. <laughs> Yes, that is a very high price to pay to get an accent, which I don't know that the Australian accent – oh, no, here come all my Australian listeners. Yeah. I don't know that the Australian accent is the one you want for artificial pseudo-intellectuality. Mm. I think my general tour of the colonies accent is the one that you want where it's kind of indefinable. It doesn't give you that that really annoying teeth grating. I say what? Upper-class <laughs> British accent. Uh, neither does it give you the Canadian accent, which just makes you want to stuff a donut up people's nose. Uh, so I think you really want to mix it up a little bit. Just don't be too generic. Just – just be the accent that's slightly smarter without annoying too many people. I like that. Yeah, and I haven't even heard an a boot or a. So you definitely hid the Canadian. I'll tell you that much. Excellent. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thank you so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. And best of luck with Freedom Main Radio. Although you don't need it, you're killing it. So well done. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate the chat. Uh, let's do it again sometime. All right. Sounds great. Have a good night. Bye. 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 Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Stefan Molyneux. If you enjoyed what you heard, you can check him out at freedomainradio.com. Don't forget to check us out, smartpeoplepodcast.com. It was good to have you. Make sure you come back next week. 